0: As a way of focusing our attention on the first part of the Paschal mystery, the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus, we have spent this Holy Week thinking through passages from first-century letters written to communities that were glad to have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, but less than eager to embrace the realization that the work of the Holy Spirit among them was to shape their lives as the sign of the cross. The scandal of the cross, we learn, is not the exception to God's way of working in the world, it is God's rule. And as we have heard Paul and the author of Hebrews address the circumstances and struggles of these ancient readers, we have come to realize that in these fundamental matters we are not so very different from them, and that the word of God in these letters speaks as directly to us as it did to them. In the very short lesson this morning, we hear how Jesus' death is interpreted by Jesus himself in his own words spoken at a quiet last meal with his students shortly before his arrest, trial, and execution. We hear Jesus speaking, however, not as we usually do within the gospel narrative, but in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. This is the very earliest evidence we have for the actual words of Jesus recorded by Paul some 20 years after his death and some 20 years before the Gospels are written. Paul quotes these words as having come to him from the Lord, and his version is remarkably close to the words that we find in the Synoptic Gospels, above all in Luke. Jesus' words to his followers at the meal tell us not only that he willingly accepts the destiny assigned him by his Father. In the Gospel, the giving of the cup at table is followed by Jesus' acceptance of the cup of suffering in the garden, but also that Jesus understands his violent death on the cross as a sacrifice offered to God for others. In this passage and in the Gospels, Jesus himself provides the deepest inner meaning of the scandal of the cross. Taking the bread as the symbol of his body, his self, his very life, he first blesses it, that is, he gives thanks to God for the bread his body, his life, and then breaks it. And as he breaks it, says, this is my body, which is for you. His body, broken in death, is the final expression of his life spent in service to and for them. Jesus' death does not betray his character. It reveals his character. Every moment of faithful obedience to the Father in the small moments of his life, every gesture of compassion toward others without his own needs being met is brought to perfect expression in his death. The joints and ligaments that he bent to the care of the weak are now stretched to the breaking the breath with which he breathed words of comfort and healing are now, with the final prayer, ended. What they are to remember as they repeat these gestures is a Jesus defined by obedience to God and service to those around him. Jesus' words over the cup make even clearer his understanding of himself as God's instrument the cup of his suffering that he will shortly accept and then drink fully is he says the blood of a new covenant and we catch in his words what the author of hebrews captured in our first reading this week when he pictured jesus death in terms of a sacrifice not in the blood of animals but in his own blood, which he offered, and in which not the covenant with Moses is renewed and confirmed, but the new covenant dreamed of by Jeremiah is realized, the covenant between God and humans, in which all humans have their hearts cleansed and can see God, not merely gathered as a people, but transformed from within. The fact that Paul should remember and quote these words of Jesus is remarkable enough. Sufficient evidence all by itself of the importance of the human Jesus for the apostle. He refers to the sayings of Jesus so seldom. And this is the only time that Paul quotes Jesus word for word. Clearly, these words in particular represented for Paul the inner meaning of the cross, a meaning provided by Jesus himself. But it is the context to which he applies these words that shows how, for Paul, the cross of Jesus, interpreted as his self-donation to others, should also be the pattern for behavior within the community. Earlier in this letter, when Paul was discussing whether or not people should eat food that had been offered to idols, Paul says that a member of the community that exercises, who exercises his or her freedom in such a way as to cause another member to be shaken in their conscience is hurting, as he quotes, the brother for whom Christ died. And he concludes, when you thus sin against your brothers or sisters and wound their weak consciences, you are sinning against Christ. So close does Paul see the interconnection between Christ and this church. Now, in order to appreciate the force of Paul's quotation of Jesus' words here in chapter 11, we need to remember the extraordinarily powerful understanding he has of the meal that he calls the Lord's Supper. For Paul, to be sure, any gathering of the community provides an opportunity for the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Jesus to be powerfully present. The church is and becomes most explicitly body of Christ when it gathers as a body, for spirit needs a body in order to express itself. Thus, when the community gathers, those who had drunk the one spirit to become the body of the Messiah provide the opportunity for the gifts of the spirit to express themselves through prophecy, teaching, singing, and speaking in tongues. But when the body of Christ gathers to share its ritual meal, the intensity of the bond between the risen Christ and believers is even greater. Earlier in this letter, Paul warned his readers about taking part in pagan worship because of the spiritual entanglements they might find themselves in. He says, when you eat at the table of idols, you have a kind of fellowship with demons. And he doesn't want them to have those kinds of spiritual entanglements. That argument is based upon Paul's highly realistic sense of what happens in the Christian meal. He asks them, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a fellowship, a participation, in the blood of Christ, and is not the bread we break a fellowship, a participation in the body of Christ? The fellowship between the believers and the risen Lord is real. Christ is present at the meal, and what they eat or drink is a participation in that presence through the Spirit. But Paul says the fellowship is also among them. Because the loaf of bread we break is one, he says, we, though we are many, are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Notice the dense and interconnected levels of Symbolism here, the bread that symbolizes the body of the crucified one, the body of the community that expresses the spirit of the risen one, the bread broken and shared that expresses the unity of the body to Christ and to each other. The entire meaning of this meal for Paul is fellowship. That is sharing and unity. Now what is against? the backdrop of this understanding of the Eucharist, that we can best understand Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians concerning their conduct at the Lord's Supper. I cannot praise you, he says, because your gatherings are not profitable but harmful. He thinks their gatherings are harmful because the Corinthians have, once more, carried the attitudes and behaviors characteristic of the wisdom of the larger world into the sacred meals of the assembly. First, Paul says, they display the same divisiveness that he rebuked early in his letter. He speaks of different factions among them at the meal. And we can hardly help thinking about the parish fellowship meals at which folks eat only with their friends or talk only with those who have voted with them in the latest church crisis. So they destroy the ideal of unity that the bread and the cup signify. Even worse, the Corinthians carry into the Lord's Supper the discriminatory practices built into the ancient system of patronage those who were wealthy and powerful and who may well have provided the bread and the wine for the common meal were, according to the ancient protocol, the ones who ate first and ate best, while those who received their benefits ate last and least. And even that practice in Corinth seems to be abused, for some of the wealthy are getting drunk while those without resources are going hungry. Now if the point was simply eating one's own meal in private, Paul says, you've got households to do that kind of thing. The whole point of the assembly's meal is the expression of fellowship, of equality, each to each and each before the Lord. Paul declares that their behavior shows contempt for the church of God and shames those who have nothing. He says, I cannot praise you in this matter. Precisely at this point, Paul quotes the words of Jesus and he concludes his citation with this statement. Every time then you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. This means that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily sins against the body and blood of the Lord. This is Paul talking, not me. He who eats and drinks without recognizing the body drinks a judgment to himself. There Paul ends, and I pick up. The pattern of the cross, Paul says, we proclaim his death, he means the pattern of the cross, must also be the pattern of community behavior. When Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his followers, it signified the body that he was then giving for and to them. It falsifies the very meaning of the meal, to fail to share our possessions with each other or to seek our own position over that of others. Only if those at the meal give of their bodies to each other in the manner of Christ do they recognize the body, that is the church, those who act in a manner that brings harm or shame to the weak in the community, sin against Christ. I close this short series of sermons by thanking all of you for taking part in this service at All Saints and thinking with me through the multiple reflections on the cross of Jesus offered by the New Testament epistles. What they have brought forcefully home to us, I think, is that the cross of Christ is not simply an event of the past. It continues to be for us today the power of God for our salvation, the wisdom of God for our instruction, and the pattern of God's will for our transformation. May your Easter... Be richly blessed by our risen Lord, the great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.